Good morning. So we're reading this morning from Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 1. You can either follow along in your own Bibles or it'll be up on the screen. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who, is, who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Thanks, Darren. Great to be with you uh, today and for the next couple of weeks. It was July 1993 when it was announced that I'd be the next senior minister of Holy Trinity Church Adelaide, which is the, uh, the church in town. Yes, here's a picture. 30, actually, this was taken a couple of years later when I'd aged significantly, but uh, that was about the time. I've still got those glasses in my drawer, I think. Uh, now, when I was appointed, I'd been the youth minister for the church, working with students, and I want to let you know there are a few people who are just a little bit nervous about my, like, think lots of people very nervous about me being appointed. You know, what are we doing appointing the youth worker as the senior minister of the church? The following week, there was a guy who came up to talk to me. Uh, we'll call him Ray. Uh, that was his real name, Ray. He came up to me, and he was a really imposing guy in his 60s, about six foot three, wearing a suit and tie, and he came up to me at the end of the service and he sort of looked down at me and uh, he said in his deep and booming book, this guy was a force of nature, and he said, Paul, I think the trustees of this church have made a big mistake appointing you. You are far too young and far too inexperienced to be the senior pastor of this church. And then he paused 
and uh, I think he was waiting for me to say something. But there wasn't really much I could say because it was true. You know, like that was just the reality of what was going on. But I sensed that I wasn't quite measuring up to what Ray expected the new senior minister of this church was going to be. And then he said to me, but Paul, I want you to know that you'll have my full support. And then he left. <laughs> it was one of the strangest encounters, really. But there you go. Today, we, we head back into Matthew chapter 11 and 12. We're doing that for the next three weeks. And it's full of negative reactions to Jesus. Uh, but the first one, John the Baptist, is very surprising. See, John feels like Jesus is not measuring up to his expectations of what the Messiah should be doing. Chapter 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, that is Jesus, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, is that surprising John's asking this question? Because if you remember back, back, back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus comes out to John in the wilderness to be baptised by him. And this is what happens there. John tried to deter Jesus, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and you come to me? See, John had been the one to introduce the Messiah and the expectations, and now he seems to be having questions. He's thinking, Jesus, maybe he's not the real deal. Now, why? Why is he thinking that way? Now, we're not sure exactly, but for some reason Jesus is not doing what John expected. We press on. Jesus replies or responds to John's disciples, and he says in verses 4 and 5, Go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Report what you hear. They'd heard Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, extraordinary, deep, powerful teaching that addressed the human heart. Then in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus did amazing miracles. Lepers were healed. Leprosy was the cancer of the first century. And with just a word, he, he restores them to full health. The blind see. You know, step aside, Fred, Fred Hollows. The dead arise. No more need for funeral directors. Uh, that's what Jesus was doing. Verse 2 of John chapter 11 John had heard about the deeds of the Messiah. This wasn't news to him. So why the question? He knew Jesus had done the signs. Why the doubt? When Jesus is speaking from verse 4 on, he's quoting from the Old Testament, Isaiah 35 and 61. And they predicted what the Messiah would do. Chapter 35 of Isaiah, verses 5 and 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. These are the evidences that the Messiah has come upon you. 
Isaiah 61 verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Friends, these are the deeds of the Messiah. I mean, isn't this what the Messiah is meant to do when he comes, when God invades the world? Won't he roll back the impact of sin? Won't he heal? Won't he stop people from being sick? Won't he roll back death? Uh, Won't he deal with spiritual oppression? That's what the Messiah will do, and that's exactly what Jesus does. And John knew it all. So, So why is he thinking... Jesus hasn't measured up in some way. Why? Back in Isaiah 61 verse 1, we read there the time of the Messiah would result in freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now remember at the time when John sends his messengers, he is in prison. He hadn't been released Maybe he's thinking, if this is the age of the Messiah, what am I still doing languishing in prison? Maybe that was part of the doubt that was going on in his head. But the other thing that's worth noting is Jesus had been very selective in his quoting from Isaiah 35 and 61. I want to take you back there and just show you what Jesus leaves out. Back in Isaiah verse 35 and verse 4, we read there, Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come and he'll come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then in Isaiah 61, that other passage we quoted from, verse 2, he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. See, John... He had preached about the need to repent in the face of the coming judgment of God. And he was in prison because he confronted King Herod because of his adultery and warned him about the coming judgment. But, you know, Jesus really to this point in time had just been doing all that popular stuff. He'd been doing the the healings and the restoration from the dead and the sight receiving their... Their vision, the lepers being restored back to health. Where where was the judgment and the wrath of God? I suspect that John probably had that sort of stuff in mind. Jesus is not quite what he expected. Sure, deeds of the Messiah, but judgment, day of the Lord. But see, John's problem is that he's got a, um, a confusion of timetabling. He expects it will all happen at the same time. The inbreak of the kingdom of God, all the healings, all the marvellous deeds and judgment being announced at the same time, all sort of smashed in together. And Jesus, he's the Messiah. He does the deeds of the Messiah and the day of judgment is coming. But right now, Jesus is saying, this is the window of opportunity to hear the good news and be rescued. You can see why John had those sort of questions about why Jesus, whether he was the Messiah 
or not. Questions around that. But, you know, it seems to me that that sort of questioning about whether Jesus is the real deal is really common today. I think it's common for both those who, who don't believe, but like I was talking about before in terms of where I came from, those who don't believe. But also, I think it's common for believers to have questions about Jesus and why he doesn't quite live up to their expectations or measurements at different points. So what I'm going to do is spend just a few moments talking about uh, Jesus, who he is in relation to those who don't believe and why there's unbelief, and then a word for um, believers. And I take it probably most of us are in that category here today. Over the years, I've had stacks of conversations with people who don't believe in Jesus. And there are a range of reasons that that people will give me, you know, like um, suffering. Why would a good God allow people to suffer in this world? Isn't he powerful enough to stop it? Doesn't he love people enough to stop it? And you've probably had those conversations. I've had conversations with people who've said, well, you know, science has disproved God. You know, you can't really, if you've got an intelligent sort of brain, think that God is real. Or others have just said to me, look, there's just not enough, enough evidence you know, to indicate that Jesus is who he said he was. And then others have said, look, you know, it might be true, but I feel like I've got too much writing on this, too much to lose if I take this all very seriously. And you, you could add to that list of what people have said to you. And over the years, what I've noticed is the conversations tend to go in the same sort of direction. You know, I'm not convinced about who Jesus was. So we go to the uh, New Testament and look at who Jesus was. And people say, yeah, but you can't believe the New Testament, can you? You know, because, you know, you can't trust it. So you go to why you can actually trust the New Testament and it's reliable. And then you look at the New Testament and see the miracles that Jesus has done. And they say, yeah, but miracles don't happen. And you say, well, why don't you think miracles can happen? Well, because they just don't, you know. And, uh, well, why don't we look at the evidence for why miracles have happened, you know, the record of what Jesus has done. Oh, yeah, but you can't trust the New Testament, can you? It's just sort of that sort of circular roll around and we seem to cycle through the same arguments and not necessarily get anywhere at all. Why can't I believe the Bible? Well, the Bible's not reliable. Well, the Bible is reliable. Oh, I still can't believe it. That sort of thing. And at the end of the day, this is what Jesus says. He says all, all those excuses at the end point really are a smokescreen. When you get to verse 16 of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to the others. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. Young children are like that, aren't they? They're always so self-referencing and uh, change the rules. One of my grandchildren the other day I heard was playing a game in the schoolyard and and she said, I can never catch my friend, you know. And I thought this is very strange because my, you know, this grandchild is actually very quick. So I said, why is that? Well, because the rules are that when you, if you're getting close to them and they say, you know, hands off, then you can't touch them and catch them, you see. And I thought, 
it's a weird rule, isn't it? You know, it's sort of, you know, kids make up the rules as they go along to protect themselves. And, uh, but this child had not quite picked up. But that's what children are like. And Jesus is saying that when people reject him, they're being fickle. There's a spiritual fickleness about that rejection. I remember having a conversation with one guy uh, who was in his early 30s and uh, we were talking, he obviously wasn't a Christian. I said, why aren't you a Christian? And he said, well, I'm a member of Mensa, that's why. And I, I said, that's, that's the group for high intellectual people, isn't it? You've got to have 145 or something to belong, you know, an IQ. And that. He said, yes, that's right. See, you hear what he was saying? He's saying, I'm too intelligent for Jesus. And you would have heard those sort of conversations over the years. I'm too intelligent for Jesus. I'm too successful for Jesus. I'm too sophisticated for Jesus. I'm too good looking for Jesus. I'm too... And you can stick in the answer. And friends, I just want to say Jesus sees straight through those lame excuses. He does. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, People have reasons for their unbelief. And those reasons need to be treated with integrity and patience and consider I'm really thankful for the people who sat down with me and worked through my excuses for not being a Christian and took the time to explain those things to me. But what I want to say is Jesus is making the point that the excuses are never good excuses. They're never sufficient excuses. And at the end of the day it's only Jesus who can actually answer the deepest questions and longings of our hearts. He's the only one who can do it. But let me move on. I want to actually offer a few words for those who believe, but still doubt. Okay? So if you're a Christian, you fall into this category. You know, there'll be questions that you have about why Jesus maybe doesn't measure up at different points. If you're a believer here in Australia today, you know that you're part of a minority group. So serious Christians in Australia, you know, those who go to church regularly, probably, you know, maybe one in 20 in our nation now. Pretty, pretty small group, really. And maybe you feel that, especially when you're surrounded by unbelieving family or friends. You know, your ethics, uh, possibly once seen at one stage as being good and moral, are now seen by society to be repressive and evil. Uh, You live in a world where new atheists have emerged and they tell you that promoting Jesus is irrational. There's a book that was released in 2019 called The Four Horsemen, uh, the conversation that sparked the atheist revolution. It's a book that captures a conversation that occurred a decade earlier along with a few articles. People like... Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and they're uh, regarded by themselves and others as the four horsemen of the apocalypse you know, from the book of Revelation. Sam Harris is uh, a well-known new atheist. He released a book called uh, A Letter to a Christian Nation. In it, this is what he says. The problem with religion... Uh, because it's been sheltered from criticism, is that it allows people to believe en masse what only idiots or lunatics 
could believe in isolation. Now, that is the atheistic view of our world that's growing in popularity. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you probably feel that. How do you feel when people treat, treat you like an idiot? I bet you, I don't like it, to be quite honest. And, uh, you know, I've come through life not feeling I was stupid, you know, but people will treat me as if I'm stupid because I'm a follower of Jesus. Or maybe you're just feeling worn down by living in a, a sin-soaked world and you're weary and tired. What Jesus does in this passage is he hammers two truths to encourage you, if you're a follower of his, a disciple, when you doubt. His his first truth is to uh, reassure us that we're on the winning team. So last year you'll know that um, most professional sport in Australia got cancelled. Uh, but the AFL managed to resurrect an abbreviated season in order, because it's very important we had the AFL, right, to uh, uh, actually play and eventually play a grand final. And, of course, we all know that Richmond won the grand final, right? And they beat... Who cares, right? <laughs> like, who knows? Who, can you remember the team that came second? You know, like, it's, it's like that, isn't it? You know, I remember the Richmond football players just celebrating and going bananas when they won... And I remember the other team just looking despondent and depressed, even though they'd made the grand final and came second. You know? And it can be like that a bit. Jesus wants us to know that we are on the right side of history if you're a disciple. Chapter 11, verse 12. This is a bit of a quirky verse, so look at it with me. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. Right? That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Not so. Uh, it's a quirky verse, actually. Lots of ink has been spilled on this one. I, I think there's a better way of translating the verse, and I'm going to get that thrown up on the screen for you. I think it should read, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people have been raiding it. What this is saying is that God is fulfilling his promise to establish the rule of King Jesus in our world. And in fact, the reality is it's, it's gaining momentum. Right across the globe, you go to South America, China, Africa, Asia, people are actually streaming into the kingdom of God in unprecedented numbers. Conversions to Christianity around the globe are advancing at something like double the rate of the population growth across the planet. It is quite extraordinary. Today, there are around 2.5 billion, or over 30% of the world's population, who are professing believers. And in Adelaide and South Australia, uh, I'm aware of people regularly becoming followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me say the growth of that gospel is opposed. Opposed by new atheists like Sam Harris, uh, people who are part of the cancel culture. We know that there's persecution in lots of countries around the globe, China, Myanmar, Africa, Indonesia. But I want to tell you that this opposition will not defeat 
God's purposes. God will continue to gather his family from the four corners of the globe and nothing will stop him. Judgment day is coming. But in the meantime, friends, just keep remembering that God is active in this age to call people to himself. That's the first thing Jesus emphasises. Then the second thing I want you to bear in mind, if you're a believer and at points you find yourself struggling, I want you to remember that you are greater than John the Baptist. I don't know if you think of yourself that way, but you are. In verses 7 to 10, Jesus um, talks about what a great prophet John the Baptist was. And then in verse 11 he says this, Among those born of women... There has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, when Ray came up to me and he said, you're far too young and far too inexperienced to be the senior minister of this church, I suspect he'd forgotten that I was greater than John the Baptist. (laughs) I don't think that's what was going on in his mind at that time. But understand that the, the least in the family of God, is greater than John the Baptist. If you're here today and you're a believer, even if you feel really insignificant in this church or that you're just hanging on by the skin of your teeth, you are greater than John the Baptist. How can that be? I mean, John met Jesus. John introduced Jesus. John was around when he did those extraordinary miracles Uh, and Jesus himself says he's the greatest man born of woman to that point in time greater than Isaiah greater than Jeremiah greater than Elijah he is he's extraordinary really but friends you and I we are greater than him how well in this sense friends we stand this side of the cross and the resurrection. We know what it means to have our sins forgiven because of Jesus' death. We know that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he has promised that he will raise us from the dead. We'll be raised to a life with God for all eternity where there'll be no more sin, no more crying, no more pain anymore. John introduced the one who would seal that. But friends, the least in the kingdom of God, uh, we have seen it. We have tasted it. And now we have the joy of belonging uh, to an eternal family. And I think sometimes we can take that for granted. You know, Stephen asked me uh, what was the impact of Christians at the time and I was investigating and I said, actually, you know, they, they looked a bit nerdy to me. And they were a bit nerdy, actually. Uh, And there were all sorts... Yeah, there were ways in which I could be critical of who they were. But, you know, I want to say that uh, I've never experienced uh, the love and the care and the genuineness or intimacy or extraordinary nature of relationships that I experience among the people of God anywhere else because we have in common what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Now let me also say I've never experienced pain like I have in church as well. 
I know that's true too. But I take it that's part of depth of relationship, uh, that, that actually both happen at the same time. But friends, you, you are more blessed than John the Baptist because you have seen the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You've experienced what he's done for you. Friends, John the Baptist, he had his, his doubts and his challenges. Uh, but I want to say there'll be points at your life, maybe you're going through them right now, where you have questions about the Lord Jesus, whether he's matching up and delivering as you'd hoped he would. Maybe that's you right now. And then you're struggling. Can I urge you, do not ever forget how privileged you are because of what God has done for you and his son. Do not ever forget that. And keep your eyes fixed on this Jesus. And as you do that, you will be secure, even in the struggles, okay, even in the doubts. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we encounter a passage that uh, confronts us with the Lord Jesus as he strides the face of our world, doing the deeds of the Messiah. And Father, we know that uh, at different points people query the veracity of those or, uh, or for us sometimes we wonder if it's enough. But Father, we pray that we'll keep remembering all the blessings we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, all the extraordinary things you've done for us in him, the way we're secure with you for all eternity, the way we're on the right side of history, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you're doing. Father, help us to hold those things in mind as we fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus and as we anticipate his return to this world. And in the meantime, Father, we pray that you'll give us the great privilege of seeing many drawn into the kingdom and putting their trust in him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.